I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Achtung Millwall supports the Lions Food Hub, and all of our advertising revenues will be donated to support this fantastic initiative. It's now based at the Lions Centre on Bolina Road, and it's run by our own Kelly Webster. This is a friendly food bank supporting families in the Bermondsey and SE16 area. If you can help support the Lions Food Hub in any way, please visit at Lions Food Hub on Twitter or get in touch with us at Achtung Millwall. The Lions Food Hub. Come on, you lions. You're listening to Achtung Millwall, broadcasting from the beautiful South Bermondsey, except no substitute. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another edition of Nick and Neil's History Hour. And we have a very special, um, well, semi-regular guest now. It's Merv Payne. Welcome back to the show, Merv. How are you doing, mate? Thanks, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Neil. Hello, boys. And Merv has a new, another new book. I, I was just saying off air, listeners, I am insanely jealous of Merv's ability to generate content because I start writing and I, I normally, if I get to the end of the page, I think I've done really well. But you have an ability to keep writing and producing good quality content, Merv. How do you do it, mate? What's your secret? Um, I don't know. I, I say I've, I've tried it for years and, and never got beyond chapter one myself. But um, in my job at the time, when I was working, I worked at a newspaper and I did some stuff for magazines and stuff. And I would always infuriate the sub-editors. So I would always go way over with my copy. <laughs> That side of my writing is terrible, really bad. He drive Colin, the poor sub, absolutely mental. He had to spend Susie's lunch hour trying to chop it all down a bit. And, you know, he'd moan that, you know, don't you understand when you told how many, how many passes a bit, that sort of thing. So it's nice to be able to have like a bottomless pit of, um, of, of sort of pages to write on. And, yeah, it's the old rule applies. They say, you know, write about what you know, write what you know, and or what you're yeah. passionate about. And, um, I'm just really passionate about the, the, the Millwall story, really. As, as again, we said off air, we talked about James Murray's book, The Lions of the South, and how it's just such a brilliant, comprehensive history of the club, you know, and there's the detail and, and the stuff that he, he pulls out. Um, and it unfortunately finished just before our sort of greatest ever season. And, and I did hope that he would continue it. I think I made contact with him a few years ago, mm. and he said there wasn't much chance of that. I think he's too involved with whiskey now, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> the whiskey bible apparently which is a fair play to him yeah um, but um but yes yeah, so, i say without wishing to, to suggest that i'm anywhere near as the quality of lines of the south i just thought wouldn't it be nice to sort of 
pick up that story where he left off and 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 do it. And um, the latest one, the nineties. So I, I had to have a good think first about is there anything worth writing about? And as it transpired, there's so much went on in the nineties. I had to split it into two, two halves because I started writing, and it was just just crazy. You know, every single season there seemed to be something. There didn't seem to be a dull, boring, prolonged season. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's plenty of content there. For I mean, Neil, I was just saying to, off, off air to to Merv the the Millwall story. I mean, in a way, this five year period we're talking to to Merv about ninety five to ninety nine two thousand ish, I guess. I mean, the, the Millwall story, pretty much from creation, Neil, has been one of hope, followed by a crushing kind of uh, disaster, followed by a rebuild and hope, and then another crushing disaster of some sort. And this this period almost sums it up in a microcosm, doesn't it? Absolutely. I know we nearly went out of business. Uh, I think when we left the athletic grounds, wasn't it? Yes, right. Isle of Dogs days when there was some doubt whether or not the club would carry on. And we seem to have lurched from one financial disaster to the other, (laughs) haven't we? But we all seem to come out of it a lot stronger, don't we? And in a lot better place. And certainly this period encapsulates that nearly going broke Theo coming in, taking over. Yeah. And then we rebuilt with probably one of the best young sides we've ever had. And that led to probably the best two or three seasons that most people will remember, apart from obviously getting promoted to the first division. Absolutely. In an FA Cup semi-final and winning it. (laughs) <laughs> and getting to an FA Cup final, even though we didn't really turn up. Uh, playing in Europe, nearly getting promoted to the Premier League. And and what happened that day and the repercussions after that that lasted for three or four years. And then John Berylson eventually came in and look where we are now. So, so, if, so if we actually look through Millwall history, you're right. There are these periods where there are dark days where you think, oh, no, this is, yeah, where the football, you know, the football family are finally going to get their wish and <laughs> do away with us. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we, yeah, we ended up reborn and re, re-infused <laughs> and we're back at our own level, aren't we? Absolutely. I've got to praise your title, of the book, I think it's a fantastic, oh, yeah. probably your best title. So I don't, I haven't read the book. I've yet to see the content, listeners. But the title, South Bermondsey Homesick Blues, I think that's the best title of the bunch that you've had so far, mate. Well done for that one. I don't know where I come up with them myself, to be honest, because that's quite often the hardest bit. Because you obviously want something that's going to be eye catching. With my yeah. second one, um, I was lucky because the, it, it just has the shirt from the, the, the promotion season, the, you know, the that iconic sort of shirt from the, the first division days, and that sort of. I probably didn't need to put a, a title on that one at all, but that was the whole natural hire thing came in. Yeah. Place. But yeah, it's, sometimes it's hard. But yeah, I mean, I just, for me personally, that period, that, the mid 90s, um, I think it was very easy to blame any sort of bad times on the move from the old den because um, it was something I think um, one of my first memories when I started down the late 70s was talk of super, the super den. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, it always would come up and it would die. It would die off again. Then we had the um, the Asda partial redevelopment that went away. So I think when it was sort of suggested in the mid or the early nineties, people just said, "Oh, it won't happen." 
then obviously but Reg Burr was clearly more of a more of a man of action than the rest and it, when it did actually happen I think it was a real shock I think probably more than I know all fans will say this but I think more for Millwall fans to leave their original stadium than any other fans to be honest um and our first season at the new ground was actually quite good you know playoffs and we were pretty 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 damn unbeatable at home but it just didn't seem still I can remember those games and, and playing, when we you know playing teams and you felt teams started to enjoy coming to play us at our place which wasn't which didn't sit right you know unless it's no, a no. game a, a cup game or a playoff game and the place was three quarters four or four to the rafters it, it didn't, just didn't feel right and I, you know, I sort of at the time was perhaps blaming everything on that on the move. Oh, yeah, this all, this all started with moving grounds. If we'd been at the old, then we'd have beaten Derby in the playoffs and all stuff like that. So yeah, I mean that's probably where it came from. So hopefully, I won't get sued by Bob Dylan. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> shouldn't have thought. Two points on that actually. If you if you actually. Yeah, the old den was a shithole, but it was our shithole. It, it was, it was. Yeah. Let's face it. And you speak to any old opposition player, and I speak to a few doing stuff, and you get around the conversation that you support Millwall, and they say, um, and to a man, they all say, I hated playing at the den. Yeah, yeah but the old den. There was just something about it. It's almost, it's almost like. We had teams almost half beaten before they turned up a lot of the time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah especially in the big games because they just knew there was going to be that evil atmosphere yeah. that yeah. went around the place. Yeah. And Reg, yeah, well, let's face it, Reg Bird deserves a lot more credit than he actually gets, I think, yeah, in the history of, of our football club. Uh he wasn't afraid to put his money where his mouth is, I think, as you and Nick have both said. Uh, he promises all sorts. I'm still waiting for the McDonald's and the pizza right in the concourses <laughs> that he originally promised us. But it just seemed, it just seems, it just was more sanitised, wasn't it? It wasn't the old den, and it lost that aura. Definitely, teams yeah. were where teams were afraid of us because yeah, we yeah. were a lot further back from the pitch, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. and you couldn't get really up close, and everybody sat down. But we had to leave the den because, unfortunately, it just wouldn't have met with the tailor requirements, would yeah, it? it would yeah, have, and yeah. it would have just cost too much. Yeah, but, quite ironically, now, yeah, we know they're talking about safe standing, we could probably get away with <laughs> I think the old den, um, much as we all love it, and every each, the three of us have all, all well remember it, but the times had moved along enough for it to be. Um, it just wasn't practical, and and the, the obviously the building of the new den, as we as it was called initially, on the new London Stadium, because um, <laughs> they tried to change the name, listeners at the, at the time, and that never stuck. But it, that that was predicated on selling the the land for the construction of the Fairview Estate, wasn't it? The um, yeah. the wow. rather the rather average looking um, red brick eighties nineties estate that replaced the old den. Um, I mean, I I. My breath is still taken away. I mean, just to follow up on Neil's point about the ambition of Reg Burr, I, my breath is still taken away a little bit by what he achieved because I well remember walking into the new ground on that opening night against Sporting Lisbon, Mervyn. My yeah. breath was taken away. I, I, I can still remember the vision of it now. I thought, yeah. it was, fuck me, what, what, we've done this, Millwall, you know. Look at it. It was, it was magnificent. And it's such a shame because it was built for the Premier League at the time. 
Yeah. And we came so close to sort of, well, we came close to actually starting life in the Premier League in there, you know, the, the previous season when we should have perhaps done a lot, so much better than we did. And, and then to come closer still. And I think had we perhaps achieved Premier League football in it early on, then things may well have been different. You know, who, who can tell? But yeah, there's no doubt Burr, I mean, his um, sort of parting um, speech in the, was in the programme when he left. Because the uh, this when the book starts, it picks up the 95-96 season. Burr handed the reins over to, to Peter Mee. and and just his, you know, it, what when he he would always come out in support of Millwall fans. He'd always fight our corner. You know, we had chairman before who would, I mean, I can remember Alan Thorne basically threatening to shut the club down yeah. after the crowd trouble at Slough in the cup. You know, and just calling us scum. And you think, you know, obviously, obviously you're you're, you're upset and you're annoyed when there's trouble, but Burr. Realised that it wasn't it wasn't everyone, and and it was blown out of proportion. And he really fought our corner, you know, and and he did it genuinely. It wasn't just paying lip service, you know. He did it, he did it with with, with real sincerity, which was I, I think nice. And it's always, I mean, a chairman's position is they're in an invidious position. They'll always get blamed for everything. They'll always get told to spend more. And so, but I think Burr was he, he had for a little bloke he had broad shoulders, you know. He, he definitely deserves a lot more credit, as Neil says. I mean, the, the, the story of the 90s um, probably really begins largely with the construction of the new den, which was the 1993-94 season. We had the near-miss um, playoff season that year, which finished in, in, in mayhem. And then uh, <laughs> I, I, we, will draw, we will say no more than that. Yeah, for um, a change. You've for a change, just leave that. Um, and then we had the kind of um, the, the the twilight of the Mick McCarthy era, which would really lead us into Merv's period. Even which, I mean, the ninety four ninety five season was um, notable for its cup run, really, boys, wasn't it? And I sometimes think that that was Mick McCarthy's season uh, period in a nutshell. Was, there was something slightly surface about it, and nothing substantial beneath. Yeah, you know? I think the thing with that season was we had a suspended. Um, Penalty hanging over us. We did. Yes. So I think, as I mentioned, that, that was like the closing chapter in my previous book. And I think that all Red Burr wanted was a really quiet season. And we ended up drawing <laughs> Arsenal and Chelsea in the FA Cup and, and playing Chelsea away. And he goes for penalties. And, and he's probably looking at it through his through his hands. And, and But, you know, we, we came through it unscathed, luckily. Yeah. But I think apart from the cup runs, probably the most notable point must have been Andy May's dad, I think, at that 94 95. Yeah, that's, that's, that, was a, that was a one man protest, wasn't it? Yeah. The dullest one of the 90s, but it, it was a necessity and we sort of came out of it and then went into that 95 96 season quite bizarrely with some some investment probably not seen since since the 87 88 investment. But, but it was very, very different. That was the key, that was the crucial thing. You know, it was something that Mill didn't really do and that was splash out money on other other teams players you know and they and and it was it was a very big gamble to get into the premier league which at the time seemed seemed quite a reasonable one because we didn't we weren't spending massive amounts although no one was at the time really i think um it, it part, part of the book is given over to sort of other news items of the time you know other transfers other big football right. stories transfers and players chelsea buying players like two and a half million quid at the time which seems like nothing now but um, to, to bring in like Malkin and Fuchs for like about a million quid, and both had, had proven they could score goals at that level, you sort of thought, well, yeah, this is, this this makes sense, you know, what what can go wrong? But um, as we remember, quite a lot. I mean, the ninety five ninety six season there was probably the most disastrous. I, I well, 
It's, it's, it's a hard pick to find the most disastrous season in Mill history, but this this must be a contender, mustn't it, Neil? I mean, I to, go, so. yeah. to go from top to bottom or near bottom yeah. in one one in one in one season is a is an achievement. You yeah. speak to a lot of former players, and I've spoken to a few doing interviews, and that that FA Cup run, and I think we also got to the League Cup quarter final. We did, yeah, well, we did. Like, they think that that actually cost us promotion, that we'd have been in and around the playoffs. Mm. And as you say, it made total sense because we had the building blocks there. We had the foundations of a very, very, very good team. Mm. And for once, I know that people these days, they say, oh, well, just wish that John Berylson, and I'm guilty of it. Mm. Is anybody else on live streams and things like that? <laughs> that you just say, just go out and just invest in the strike mm. that we need. Yeah. And he went out and invested in a couple of strikers that he thought we needed. Yeah. Or, yeah, but the chairman, yeah, but the club did at the time. And uh, it spectacularly backfired on us, didn't it? It nearly cost us Millwall Football Club again. Good play. I mean, Fuchs' record at Middlesbrough on loan to Middlesbrough was brilliant, you know, and just that we just couldn't believe we managed to get him. It was he was able to they were able to sign him and, and Malcolm was a regular scorer for Tram. They always seem to score against us. Yeah. So you thought, well, what a great bit of business is you've basically gone out and bought the two form horses as far as strikers are concerned in, in, at that level, rather than taking a punt on a lower league player or an aging, an aging sort of top flight striker. And and everything else seemed to be okay, you know. But I think one of the strange moves was uh, we let Mark Beard go. Sheffield United, he was one of our one of the remaining uh prospects or sort of products of the youth youth setup. And we'd seen a lot of homegrown players leave, mostly to bloody Wimbledon. You know, we'd seen you know Cunningham go and Goodman go. And you see, it was a strange, un, very unmoral like sort of thing to say to, to sort of ship out the, the youngsters and bring in you know these players from other clubs when we'd normally do it the other way around, you know, I think Roberts went to Palace as well, but he did, it yeah. All, yeah, it was all to fund this, this rebuild, and at first it seemed to be going okay, you know, I mean as late as December, we were top of the league until that fateful match at Sunderland, but I think we beat West Brom at home, I think they were second, they were third at the time, we were second, or yeah, yeah, 2-1, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, but you, you, you left the matches thinking, well yeah, we're top but we didn't have that sort of, even 87-88 when we were, we couldn't really get into the top sort of five or six places. We seemed to have that little bit of quality about us and we felt the opposite was perhaps true. We were, you know, fate was been a bit unfair, but you did feel like we were um, pulling all over people's eyes in 95, 96 and it was, it was soon to be proven, I think. I mean, un- underpinning this season um, was the story of Mick McCarthy, a manager that I've always, I've never taken to Mick McCarthy. I'll lay my cards on the table, chaps. I mean, we're, we're all adults here. I, I, I've never believed in him and I think it was possibly... Um, it was this season, in a sense, that summed him up. There was always less to him than that met the eye. You're right, Merv, we were top of the league going into December, but it was one of those um, odds things where you just wondered how and and it didn't seem to be built on anything substantial. Um, But Mick McCarthy, really up until his departure, which I think was in, was it January or February, finally went to take the Irish job, was, was, was... it was it was underpinned by by whatever Jack Charlton was he going to retire was he going to carry on for the Republic of Ireland and yeah. that seemed to dictate McCarthy and I'm, I'm sure that uncertainty fed into the squad because 
we just went to pieces after being top of the league listeners in December, as late as December. I think we were still in sixth position in, uh, I'm just looking at my history site. The end of January, we're still in sixth spot, chaps, and (laughs) contrived to, for it to fall away completely and get relegated in 22nd position by by May. Yeah, we talk about that Sunderland game. But the rot had actually set in a little while before that. Yes, definitely, yeah. It was the November. Mm. And I think that was the... I think we... Yeah, I think we'd gone five or six games without winning before. Yeah, Yeah, we had a losing streak across... uh, Well, 25th of November, we got beat at uh, at Stoke 1-0. Then you're right, Neil, it's consistent loss, 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 draw, loss. And that was the culmination of it. That Yeah, we're having our asses handed to us at Sunderland. Six nil. Actually, yeah, it was actually the culmination of it, I think. But I covered Millwall around about that time for the Mirror and various other people. Right. And you always got the impression that there was a bit of an undertone with Mick McCarthy. I can remember turning up to meet Casey Keller to go mm-hmm. for lunch one day, and we met at the training ground. And because I hadn't because McCarthy hadn't invited me in, he almost frog marched me outside the main gate <laughs> and things like that. And I was just waiting there because I was friendly with Casey Keller at the time and we were gonna go well, we were gonna go for lunch. Yeah and I had to do a magazine piece with him. Okay. Yeah, those were in the days when you could just pick up a phone, phone up a player and say, Do you fancy going out for a couple of drinks and something to eat? I want to write a magazine piece with you. And he said, yeah, fair enough. So we arranged to meet up. And I saw McCarthy at a couple of games after that. And he there was always a slight sinister <laughs> undertone to him. It was almost as if he, I, he made up his mind that he didn't like me. And that was the... Yeah, well, I can quite understand. I don't like him. <laughs> but McCarthy, I, I, I mean, I, I was just a fan standing on, well, it's not standing on the halfway line, was I? I, I wasn't when he started, and then I was sitting in the, uh, on in the in the, in the uh, West Upper by the time he finished. But I, I always had the impression it might have been fed by the fanzines um, because that was your only real route into the into the what might really be happening at the club with the the line roars and no one likes us and the, and the like at the time. But I always had a sense, boys, that McCarthy didn't like me all very much either. You know, there was a kind of like a mutual wariness on both sides toward him. You hate, if you like, or dislike. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I think, yeah, yeah, I actually think that's carried on for years, hasn't it? Because every time <laughs> McCarthy has brought a team back, all as you've heard is, McCarthy, McCarthy, you're a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for anybody that does our language, but you've got to say these things. <laughs> I, did, I did try and, to get to the bottom of this a little bit, because I remember, I think it was on, it might have been on House of Fun a few years ago, and, and to give a pinch of salt, but someone claimed to have bumped into McCarthy in Chiselhurst. I think he was where he was living at the time. He was still doing the Ireland job, and they sort of didn't let on who they supported, and they just sort of generally got into a bit of football chit chat and claimed that he actually said he he actually hated Mill and, and the fans. <laughs> I, I, I thought, you can imagine him being that candid and being that, <laughs> but um, at the same time. I, the few the players that I spoke to um, said no, he didn't really have a problem. I think I think McCarthy is is a manager's manager. He's his own man. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, he won't, he won't he won't sort of toe the club line. He basically say I'm 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 Mick McCarthy. I'm the manager. I'm not I'm not Ipswich manager. I'm not Wolves manager. I am the manager. You know, I won't sort of. Whereas you look at someone like I mean, to, to coin a, a, a Ian Holloway phrase, all fans didn't get him. 
I think McCarthy is a very much a football manager who you've got to get. Whereas obviously with Mill, it's the other way around. You've got to get Mill if you're the manager, otherwise you're not going to succeed. And I think Mick McCarthy's um, old school. Yeah, I think his attitude is if you if, if I'm going to be manager, I'm going to be manager, and that's that. I'm not going to I'm not going to cow out for the fans. I'm not going to try and get them on side. I'm just going to I'll, I've got my way of managing, and and that's what I'll do. And and Alex Ray in particular said he took to him because he said he just he just told it to you straight. So there was no bullshit. There was no sugarcoating stuff. Um, in fact, one of his stories was that um, one of the first things he did when he was manager was he, he, he asked Alex to move from centre midfield to right. And Alex said, I don't, I don't want to do that. So he put him on the bench for six games. And said, I'm not going to play you then. So, one of our greatest talents. Well, yeah, we yeah. can stick, so stick him on the bench. Yeah. I want to play you Saturdays. And he said, Where said, On the right. And he sort of grudged and he said, Well, okay then. He said, He played me on the right. And I scored two goals. He said, I realised then if, if your manager tells you to play on the right or on the goal, but he do it. But he said he knew. He said he, he knew his own mind. He wouldn't back down, which is which, which will work great at certain clubs. And I think there's a good reason he's still manager thirty years later. To be fair to him, with know. some success as well, Merv. I yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, and I think um, you know, certain managers with the certain ways, as we saw with Ian Holloway, will not work at Millwall. And I, I think we got we got on for a little while with, with, with Mick, and it sort of chugged along. But I think it was one of those relationships that was always on the verge of. Um, was on the verge of, of, of breakdown. <laughs> I mean, he would leave us, I, I, I think it was January, someone out there may correct me, yeah. it might have been Feb, I can't remember now. It might be early Feb, because I think it was early Feb. Very early February, I think. I think, he, I think his last match in charge was actually the first game of February that year. So. Okay. Yeah. And then we had briefly had Ian Evans in caretaker uh, management, and then he would also, I think, leave to go and join Mick McCarthy in the Irish yeah, um, position. Yeah, he's been yeah. McCarthy's sidekick everywhere he's gone, yeah. really, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And then, in, in my inimitable way, I always fall for the hope, boys. And uh, when Jimmy Nicholl arrived, I actually felt, I actually felt hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bought it, Neil. I bought it. Yeah, well, I felt the same way when Lomas came in. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You try your best. Try not, you try want to believe it, Merv, don't you? You want to believe you really, it. You really try, and then they just, they just, they just break you down. But you know, <laughs> from my dad quite late at night, so I know Nick was got the job. I remember thinking, that's a really good move. You know, someone young, that's the sort of manager that like bloody Palace could go on a point and then instantly get promoted with, you know. And, and yeah, yeah. Next week I thought that could be good. I thought, you know, now we, we've got some good players and we've got the Russians, you know, we've got these two in there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> When you, when you look at it like this, that, that season was just literally the perfect shitstorm, basically. Everything was, every single element was just wrong. You know, the, the managerial situation, um, the Russians, which I've heard from one player that I spoke to, Mick had actually, Mick, despite Mick's um, programme notes at the time saying how pleased he was to have got the deal over the line, how hard they all worked and how keen he was to get him in. According to one player, he knew nothing about it at all. Right. Evolving whatsoever, he was just told, look, we're getting these in and you need to play them and that was it and so again there's another there's another problem right from the start whether that's true or not i don't know but you know that's what i was told in good faith yeah well i was led to believe that it was all driven by peter mead at the time i don't know i think we'll probably have to get peter mead on the podcast nick that that would be an idea yeah i mean i'd be interested well just to actually clarify the point but i was under the understanding that Mick McCarthy didn't have an awful lot to do with signing. You're wrong on Uran and um, and uh, Kulkov, yeah. Sergei uh, Uran, Vladimir Kulkov. He pitched up one day and he was told, right, then you're signing these two. I mean, yeah. Pete, 
Peter Mead was an advertising executive, wasn't he? That was his. Yeah. He, he, that's where he that's made his um his, his yeah. career. Yeah. And as as so often, and I, I don't know if it's a Millwall thing, Murph, but I mean, what seems like a good idea on the surface, and any other club, it may well have really worked. Yeah, yeah. It's that we we you know we we've we've acquired two Russian um, highly talented players. I mean, when you know when whenever you saw them. Yes, they're out of condition, but they—you could see they had touch and vision, and you could—they were a different level. It's just that they couldn't keep out of the bar, you know. Um, Russian players at the time, I think Brighton signed a guy called Gotsmanov. Yeah. And Sergei Boltacha, whose son ended up playing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a movement towards bringing these Eastern Europeans in. Who, yeah, but let's face it, they were all technically good players. They were World Cup stars. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. And uh, on the face of it, it should have been, but I think probably London was probably the reason. (laughs) Bright lights, the readiness of vodka and nightclubs, (laughs) and crashing Porsches or whatever else they got up to. I think think our location was probably against us. They probably needed a nice rural place where there was absolutely nothing to do and they'd have probably taken off because they'd have been able to concentrate on football yeah um it's, it's one of the great um what ifs of mill history i think what if only or if only perhaps if only the russians had kind of got fit and, and made it happen and they would they 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 were a level above uh, many of our own players, but they were just yeah. so out, out of condition. And um, well, yeah. the Russians yeah. hadn't have been bloody signed in the first place. <laughs> but then again, we wouldn't have this glorious period to talk about. Merv no, Mark. and it would all culminate, of course, Merv, in the last day draw at Ipswich, which um, sent us down in twenty second position um having been top of the table in december a very millwall story isn't it you know yeah, rel- yeah, and i think what's more Millwall is a few games before i think four games before that we played birmingham at home mm. beat them two nil yeah we got to the magic 50 points i think it was not 51 no, 51 51 yeah and basically saying how anyone goes down with 51 points we've got four games left that you know we, we, we're sorted we're okay I and mean, there was almost like a was like a promotion celebration. Or, or Go and have a drink with Sergey and Vladimir. And like they sort of relax, and then the very next game we go and get slaughtered by Oldham and yeah, three nil at Huddersfield. Yeah, went to Huddersfield and got beat three nil, and and it was like they 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 had their feet up, and you you start looking at teams that, that look doomed like Watford and Luton, and they're starting winning. You think, hang on, and Portsmouth, and you're thinking. Hold on, we actually could still be in trouble. And you thought, well, surely we'll get a couple of points. And then, it, you know, the problem also was, I think, Luton and Portsmouth had games in hand and they whittled them away. And suddenly we're down to that last day and it's out, almost out of your hand. You know, you have, you have to win. And so often in the past, we all have risen, risen to that challenge. I mean, I think most the most memorable for me was Chesterfield away in 83. Yeah. Win there and we did and, and, and stayed up. You know, there was a real air of inevitability about it. And the fact that Portsmouth's winning goal at Huddersfield was set up, set up by Jimmy Carter was quite ironic as well. And it, the whole thing just seemed sadly sort of mill fate, really. You know, and I, I just remember that it was the weirdest feeling ever. Because um, just, just to actually try and let it sink in that we'd, we'd been relegated, you just couldn't get your head around it. But um, yeah, it was completely bizarre. Yeah. 
I'm just looking at that final day team there. I mean, it's 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 like looking at one of the old Greek ruins, you know, where you can see the glory that was, yeah. only it's all cracked and bits are falling yeah. off now. You know, um, you got Casey Keller in goal. Connor, who's Connor? I th- he's gone out of my head. Connor, James Connor, James Connor. Wow, really good, really good youth prospects. And okay, and from the middle way, he broke in the first team, got a bad injury, and was never seen again. Really, so Connor. I- Gone out of my head. Reading the book I've written, Mervyn sank you, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> in the, the yeah, but, yeah. but then we've got, we got Ben Thatcher, who would be player of the season that year. Great, yeah. great defender. And he would move on, obviously, with relegation. Bobby Bowery, less less so, but, you know, willing enough. Jason Van Blurk, Keith Stevens, the old war horse. Um, Weir, was that Dave? Was it Davey Weir? Was it, was, was it P- yeah, P- P- Mickey Weir. Mickey yeah. Weir, Mickey Weir, yeah, yeah. Morris Doyle, um, Dave Savage, Chris Malkin, um, Gerard New, uh, Ricky Newman, not Gerard, Gerard uh, Ricky Newman, Tony Witter, Lucas Neal, and, and Rogan on the bench. So there were some great players mixed in with some less great names <laughs> on final day yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that it, team should still actually have been good enough. It should have been to have actually stayed up. But the trouble is with football, once you get on a roll, it's very difficult to get off a roll, whether or not you're winning matches and even more so when you're losing matches. Yeah, yeah, you have the odd good results, which I think was that 2-0 win. Yeah. But you've still got that slump. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Achtung, Milbal. Um, 96-97, Merv, would be um, as close as we've come, really, um, to, to, to non-existence. We, we went into it. Went into administration, um, still managed by Jimmy Nickel. Um, things would not um, improve. I mean, we, we actually weren't doing badly in the league that at well, one it, point. Again, it was, a, it was one of those seasons. We started off, we had a, we, got, we ditched Captain Morgan as a sponsor. We had South London Press sponsoring this. There's a bit That's more, right, yeah. Together, and it's a bit more of a, a, a bringing the mill thing back. And we invested in a lot of Nickel's ex-players from, from Rafe. 
Crawford, Hartley, Dare, yeah. Davis, Sinclair. Um, and yeah, it did, it looked okay. And we got Huckabee in when we had our usual injury jinx. And Darren Huckabee looks just a different, a different level. And there was talk at the time. Again, we talk about Peter Mead, he's a great bloke, lovely bloke. He's got some of things at Mill, but as you say, he's an advertising man, so a lot of it's in the um in the cell. Yeah. At the time we were led to believe that um we were in the market to actually pay Newcastle the million pound they wanted for Huckabee, um, if, if they would agree to let him go. But um the problem was then the loan system was different. You couldn't loan someone for a whole season. You could loan them, I think, for a month. And they had okay. And Keegan insisted he wanted to, Huckabee was part of his plan, so he went back. So um, we, we plodded on without him. Um, actually did quite well when he went. Um, and then Newcastle promptly sold him to Coventry for a million quid. So um, it was one of those weird sort of things. You wonder what, how much you're being told by the press and stuff about what's going on at the club is, is to be believed. And, but yet you feel at least, well, we must have money to spend. We must be in reasonably good health, you know, money-wise. And then suddenly, you know, I think it was on the terraces at Stockport County, we were getting battered 5-1. Mm. And a word had got, been, just been announced, we've gone into administration and then, you know, dozens of club staff were being laid off and they were looking for a buyer. And very, very quickly, the reality was that, you know, the club was very close to going out of business. And I spoke to a few people I thought Jeff Burnage as well and I said look you know just just how genuine just how close did we come because at the time the stories of Theo Petitis you know, interest had, had, had gone around the club for a long time right from from the start of administration he was clearly keeping an eye on the, on things there but but you know Jeff said there was so many so many sort of hurdles to overcome in, in Theo's sort of deal which is for him to sort of take it on, that we come very, very close to actually, you know, not, not making the deadline. Yeah. If you have to make two sort of uh, promises to the, the, the football authorities, first of all, you have, to, you have to promise them or prove to them you can finish the season, but then almost immediately, and you can beg, borrow and steal and shift money about and to do that, but then almost straight away, they want to know, can you prove you can get through next season, which, and I think that was the real stumbling block was finding that sort of thing. So. So, yeah, I mean, we did come closer than a lot of people imagine, I think, to actually going out of business. There certainly wasn't anyone outside of Mill that was willing to sort of like uh, wish us well and, and hope for our sort of survival. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it was a very scary time where we went from ch- challenging for the Premier League to sort of fighting for our, our, our existence. So to actually be in a situation where we still had a club was, and was, a, was, a, was a great relief, I think. Well, we weren't the only club at the time, of course, to go through it. I think it was quite a regular thing. Yeah. Days there wasn't a week went by when mm. there wasn't a club that was whose whose mere existence was threatened. I think mm. just before then, Aldershot had gone out of business, hadn't they? Yeah. Uh, Newport County and things like that. So, yeah. so there were always clubs lurching from one disaster to the next. And of course, yeah. after what that season started with that bloody cup defeat at Woking. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had a lot of clubs at the time because again the rules were different. A lot of clubs would put themselves into administration, so they could basically just write off their debts and start again. You know, they they pissed a load of money up the wall trying to get success. It hadn't worked. They thought, okay, we'll go into administration, start up a new version of the, the, the club or the company, and, and start from scratch. And the, the, all the creditors get twenty p in the pound or whatever. And obviously now you get points deductions and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, um, it led to that rule, I think, about 10 or 15 yeah. years later, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, yeah you finally got pissed off with clubs doing that. Yeah, and I think, yeah. yeah. And then, I think it was just after it happened to us a second time, about 10 years later, yes, that they actually right. brought that rule in. Mm. 
I think the impression of, of the non-financial person or the average fan was that, as you said there, Neil, that administration would be done almost as a kind of a, as, as a ploy to gain advantage, financial advantage in some way, relaunch yourself and, you know, come back. Um, a bit like Keith Richards used to have his blood change fused before a tour and you come back almost renewed in some way. Um, and for, for, for reasons that are probably too deep for us to go into today, it never seems to work out quite that way. With there, there never seems to be that many people willing to take us on. And, you know, love, love him or hate him. Um, and he's, he's, a, he's a Marmite character, Theo. But, um, I mean, as, as you said there, um, Merv, I mean, we really were ticking down to the last few minutes, I think, yeah. before the deal was done. It came that close. That way, there wasn't a queue of people after Theo to sort of have, have a go. And and like I say, the, the, you know, very, there's very few chairmen that ever ever stay popular forever. And the, Theo added his knockers, but you know, he was just what we all needed at the time. He, he was a he was a man of action. You know, he, he put his money where his mouth was, and he was a man of ideas as well. Which was, yeah, breathed new life. He, he, he was one of these people who. He looked at every single corner of the club, uh, no matter what it was, and and sort of just just injected energy into it and new ideas. And at the time, a few of them were sort of frowned upon, or we weren't too sure. I think the first thing he did was the home shirt had this bizarre sort of silver thing going, a silvery grey thing going on with the shorts, and yeah, the live the, the weather the weather in Norway. <laughs> got us publicity, you know. And he was one of these people that um, you know, all publicity is good. I mean, one of the, the funniest things at the time was the um, pre-season photo call on the pitch, and you had Billy Bonds in his chinos and his club polo, <laughs> um, Kirsten Imry in the away shirt, the, the, the Patriot model at the time. Yeah. Um, Damper the Lion, I think, and there was the news, and, and the news bunny was there as well. Okay, this <laughs> rabbit who used to do mimes from the news on live TV, so it was almost like being on some sort of trip. But, um, yeah, I mean. The good thing about Theo was, I mean, and some of his program notes were brilliant. He didn't pull any punches, you know, and it, it was great. And again, like like Burley, he would back the fans. Um, that would obviously come to a head. That obviously finally uh, tipped him over the edge with the, the Birmingham game, I think. The playoff yeah, game. yeah, it did. Backed yeah. the fans. He, he, he didn't just sort of toe the line, toe the line of the, the football league or the, the police, that sort of thing. He, he backed the fans up. And he, he, whether whether our fans liked it or not, whatever we did later that the man disagreed with, he, he, he did save the club. And he put him on a really good footing and he recognised, he was, he was a football fan, a football person, and he recognised the importance of homegrown talent and of, um, of having an academy at the club. And uh, suddenly we'd gone right back to where we were in sort of the, the, the 80s, where we were developing our own talent and scouting our own local talent. And that was the, the start of it, really. You know, he admitted himself, he was the first to admit that he's, some of his decisions, he, he got it wrong. And I think he, he, he said at the end of the season, he'd buy everyone a beer and he did. You know, that first season, there was a little token in the programme, take it to the kiosk and get a... Get yourself a beer. A beer, you know, and that sort of thing. I think Millwall fans appreciate that. They've, been, they've had a lot of bullshit over the years, they've had a lot of promises made and and, 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 not, and broken. So, you know, Theo was one that kept his promises. And um, and what was his, his choice of manager was probably one of the best things because I don't think he truly appreciated... He was, he, he was a good, knowledgeable football man, but I don't think he truly appreciated the culture at Millwall and thought that we might accept Billy Bonds as manager. <laughs> but but um, that was, again, he, he wasn't afraid to make a decision that would raise an eyebrow and say, look, just give me a chance, just see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, and within a year, he thought, right, I've got it wrong, I'll get rid of him. You know, and, and that was, you've got to respect that in a way. You look at Theo's whole business career, mm. it's been that he's gone into, he's bought companies, he bought Ryman when they were on their downers. And, he did, uh, yeah. 
to other companies and he turns them around and then he flogs them on, if you like. And that's what he did at Millwall. Yeah. He came in to a club that was virtually bankrupt, or in fact, it was bankrupt. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Then he turns it around and, and Millwall was good for Theo. And Theo was good for Millwall because he got his profile raised at oh, Millwall. Yeah. People suddenly knew who Theo Pafitis was through all of these stunts. So it was a win-win situation. And, it, yeah, but it's unfortunate the way that it turned out. But he made it was he made us feel good about ourselves again, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, we can always remember the live TV girls, Anne-Marie Foss and... Uh, yeah. And the other one, and uh, it, it it was just it was just a fun time. It it, it seems it's odd because nostalgia is a weird thing, boys. I mean, I well remember the um what you said earlier on, Murph. The, the there was kind of like a silver and blue combo for the the shirt with with this garish slogan, "The weather in Norwegian" on live TV. Um, oh, and I, wasn't it yeah, the and I remember hating it at the time, and yet it's now become an iconic shirt that people will want to wear whereas once i would have said i would, wouldn't I, mean, I wouldn't put any of them on there but you know it was just weird the, the journey of nostalgia how yesterday's yeah. garishness becomes today's what yeah, must have similar to that lewisham shirt that got a promotion in 88 and yeah first yeah season. i think you look at that shirt and you just think you think first division and i look at the live tv shirt and i can see that the team the, the players walking out at wembley at the time after waiting so long for us to get to wembley and Obviously, again, that's another another typical Mill story of, of raising your hopes and then crashing them again. But even so, we were so desperate to get to Wembley. And whenever I look at that live TV show, I, I think of that that day, and that was like you know, again another the, the, the fulfilment of another long, long dreamt of sort of that, you know sort of dream for, for Mill fans. But um, obviously, what we forgot to mention was that John Doherty came back briefly. He did, yeah, he had a, he had a, yeah, it wasn't as successful. It wasn't and it was a, again. It was a strange time. Initially, he, he got them, he got them winning, and they were on the fringes of the, the top two. And then they just suddenly went on another uh, downward spiral again. And it was another sort of se- end of season sort of slump. But um, it was just, just to say, a bizarre time of, of managers where one minute you've got John Doherty, who's all the club the greatest days of the, of the history, and the next minute you've got Billy Bonds, who's like a West Ham's one of West Ham's favourite sons. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you speak to any of the players back then, and Merv probably has done for that book, yeah, for his new book. But the players genuinely liked Billy Bonds. Yeah, I can imagine they would have done. Yeah, and he seemed to work quite well with the players, and and he brought he brought on some very good players for Millwall, and brought very good players in for the club. And, And you speak to a player, and they haven't got a bad thing to say about the guy. But for some unknown reason, it just it just didn't work out, did it? I don't know quite what it was. Well, well I mean, it was, it was, I think it's without that, the West Ham connection. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he had a very short but brilliant or perfect managerial CV and he got, he got West Ham into the first division when we felt we should have got there back in, in 91. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're right, you're dead right, Neil. He, he basically brought through the nucleus of that great team of the early 2000s. Um, Reed and and Kale and players like that came through on his watch. Um, not he couldn't take all the cost of the credit for him, but he was prepared to put him throw in people like Richard Sadley and Danny Hopson and, and get the young players in. And, and obviously his West Ham background, he knew the value of um, 
of young homegrown players. But one of my favourite probably stories about Billy Bonds was towards the end of the his only season when we signed Neil Harris. And we've been tracking him for some time. And um, time had come because it was getting close to transfer deadline day at the time, and it used to be at the end of March. And the, the time had come to make a decision on him. And um, Mick Beard at the time was, was, was on the academy and recommended him. And Bonds decided after consulting all his ex West Ham coaching staff, uh, he wasn't, he didn't think it was worth a pump. So he said, no, I don't fancy him. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. We won't, we won't take him up. And Mick Beard apparently said, look, you know, you really do need to give this guy a chance. Just, just give him a go. And even if it's just a one year sort of deal. So on almost on Mick Beard say so, he gave in and he, he signed Neil Harris and he threw him straight into the first team. So he <laughs> playing Cambridge City, five levels below Mill in the league, straight in the first team. And um, and Mick is convinced that he perhaps did that to try and prove a point. Hopefully yeah. Perhaps die on his ass. And um, yeah, he played him on the wing as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. And considering, uh, considering that, considering he'd been playing for Cambridge City one week and then at Mill in in a pretty tough, you know, rough third tier the next, in a team that was struggling a bit. He, he very quickly found his feet, and I think you know um, proved proved a lot of people wrong. But Absolutely. Well, that sliding door moment, I think, in Millwall's history, possibly because we, that's how close we come to not actually signing Neil Harris. Football, football has these moments, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I I do think I agree that Billy Bonds is is much maligned for irrational reasons. Really, he actually, he actually did build. Or began, he began began the process of rebuilding that would start to come to pass in the 98-99 season, really, which would be under Keith Stevens. Um, yeah. Club legend, really, but he never seems to quite get the credit, Rhino, does he? That other club legends get is is always a by-the-way slightly, but I, I think he was a great servant for, for yeah. Mill Football Club. And then he, he would manage as a sole manager for 98-99. I don't know to what level McCleary came in during the course of that season or, or how it worked, but they've become joint managers eventually. Yeah, but Yeah, strange one, that, how that worked out, really. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, I, I think, like I say, defeatists figured out pretty quickly um, the Millwall sort of culture. And, and funnily enough, I think Billy Bond started one of his programme notes once saying something like, look, I know I know you're never going to like me or something. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but I, just, I, just, I know, I know. It was, I've got it down somewhere. I think it's in the book, I think. But it was quite, maybe quite like very dead painful. I know you don't like me, but I, I do I do want to do well for this club. So, <laughs> you know, can't get on. But, um, That's like, great stuff. Summed up, summed up that lack of tolerance. You know, a, 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 an ex-West Ham player as a middle manager is going to get a lot less time to... Um, well, I mean, Lomas is probably the great example of that. Yeah. You know, um, it, it didn't work out. Let's put it that way for, yeah, for Steve right, Lomas. Right yeah, but Stevens at the opposite end of the scale. You know, every Millwall fan knew him, and he had McCleary in there as well. And you're looking at two players who come through the through the youth team, through the club, local lads, knew the club inside out, had experienced the best of times of the club, and and and, and also perhaps the worst. And just knew they had a they had a plan basically. That's I think the, the, the bottom line in football is I think I'm not speak, I'm not this is coming from a fan who's watched a lot of football, not not from someone who's got a coaching badge or anything like that. But I think it's fair to football is a very, very simple game. And I think when you when you overcomplicate it, that's when the problems start. Certainly obviously at Premier League level, there's a lot more there's a lot more to it. But I think when you're talking at third tier football, even professional football, I think it's quite simple. And I think Stephen and McCleary realised that. They realised what they had to work with. 
they realised what they had coming through and they, the best way to, to go about it. And they developed quite a very simplistic system of having every single team from the juniors to the youth to the reserve, mm. whatever, the academy, playing the same system right the way through. So it made the transition of players easy. And that showed him he was quite happy to throw someone like Paul Eiffel in straight in the first team if he'd had a few good games in the for the academy or for the, for the youth, you know. And, and it, it was a big gamble, but it paid off massively because that was a huge transitional season, that sort of 98-99, obviously culminating in Wembley. Yeah, and and I mean Neil, what a lift to the spirits going to Wembley was. I, I genuinely never imagined I'd ever see Millwall Football Club take yeah. the field at Wembley Stadium ever. Yeah, but I don't know how many times have we done it since. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was a spark, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we yeah. didn't only go to Wembley; we actually invaded Wembley. We did fifty-five thousand. Yeah, that's right. And we took over Wembley, and we take over Wembley every time we go there. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing more that Millwall love than a bit of glory hunting, isn't there? And people who haven't been for years are suddenly phoning you up. Your phone goes alive. <laughs> you get us a Wembley ticket, and how do we get Wembley tickets? I was at Carlisle on a Tuesday night forty years ago, and. <laughs> <laughs> that's that sense of entitlement, but no, it, it, that Wembley game I think was unlucky in one that Paul Shaw wasn't fit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good striker, Paul Shaw. Yeah, yeah. And he was a goal scorer, and I think he had. I think he told me that he had a shoulder operation or something leading up to that final, and it was just about two or three weeks too soon for him. Yeah, yeah. We had. I mean, similarly, you look, you look at the the FA Cup final. Obviously, we didn't. We, had, we didn't have Cisco, who was sent off at Forest a few weeks before, quite unfairly. Mm. And we didn't have um, Muscat, who had a bad injury. Yeah, he was, was injured, yeah. yeah. Players, didn't play. Yeah, and then with the Wembley final against Wigan, we had, obviously, as you say, Shaw was injured for a little bit. Um, I think they, they tried to bring him back away to York the week before. I think he scored, and then he got, I think he got, the, he got injured again. Um, but the biggest, I think, loss was, was uh, Rishi Sadlier. It was for a bizarre reason that FIFA decided to play the under eighteen, the under eighteen World Championships in Nigeria, <laughs> and um, and obviously Richard sadly been doing so well for me. All the FAI noticed him and said, "Oh, we'll, we'll take you along for the ride. You'll probably be only be on the bench." And of course, it coincided with, with the, the AWS final. And as it turns out, sadly did well. He scored goals. He got into the knockout stages. And I think the way it transpired was I think they played the host Nigeria in the knockout game the day before. Right. So our only chance of getting him in was well, I've been a couple of days before. We had to hope that Ireland lost and um, we could get him home. And I think I think sadly it gave him the lead and they ended up losing on penalties. So it went as long as long as it could. And they literally rushed him and, and he had his own words. He went from I think he's in his book actually. Went from like the airport from, from Nigeria to the airport straight to Wembley and as he walked out into Wembley so he didn't know what day it was or where he was and he didn't know what was going on so but you know a fully fit Richie Sadlier fully fit Paul Shaw um, yeah may have been different um, who, knows, who knows what could have happened but that's just and he'd get another of those um, yeah it was probably one of the worst games that he's <laughs> ever seen that one wasn't yeah, it it was absolutely yeah. bloody awful we had one little half chance I think where a Harris shot was kicked off the line and other than that yeah so inevitable. The last minute Wigan goal was just inevitable, really. Just so typically Millwall. 
my my memories of the day are quite uh, more about the the places like Victoria Station and, and Wembley Park and the tubes and the because the uh, for anyone who never went to the old Wembley Stadium, the, the view was appalling. I mean, I was right down near the front of the terracing yeah. behind the goal. So, I mean, I remember the goal going in late for, for Wigan, but I couldn't tell you what it seemed to be like a, a scuffle at the other end of the pitch, I yeah, think. And, and, and it went. <laughs> so that was all I could remember of it, you know. Yeah, it was nice still to, to get at the old, because obviously the new Wembley is all very well and good. Yeah. Nice the Twin Towers, the history, and all the rest of it. Um, Dumped by then, it was still the history of the place, yeah. It was and more iconic, about it, yeah. Iconic, iconic that's the word, that, yeah. Walk out of those that tunnel, and yeah. I think of all the FA Cup finals I watched as a kid, and you see the teams coming out those huge tunnels, and there's those images of um Clough and Shanky looking at each other as they come out for the charity shield, and that, and yeah, and to see your team to see Mill doing that, it's just it's proper goosebump stuff, you know. It's like a, it was the old Wembley was like a stately home where you wouldn't want to live in it, but it was magnificent to look at. I want to cover the game. I, I want to cover the rugby league cup final there. Okay, yeah, yeah. And you're allowed in the dressing rooms after the game, yeah, to interview the players. So you went in the dressing rooms, and the only way to get back in into the press box was to actually walk up the tunnel. <laughs> That's wonderful, walk, wonderful. Walk across that bit of the walk that took you behind the goals and then you went up one of the you went up one of the aisles oh, right. and it is a goosebump moment that I can imagine up, yeah I can imagine walking out the tunnel at Wembley and you just yeah your mind just goes to what a great place it was and you're right it's yeah but it's not the same you haven't got the twin towers they should have left the twin towers oh, yeah, yeah yeah I mean it's it's a very nice stadium now. It's just, it's oh, just yeah. another, it's just another stadium. Another new ground. It's yeah. though. There's no atmosphere in there. Oh, yeah. there? No. But, I remember um, the Lion Roars just to to close us. I mean, the Lion Roars did a great front page. It was almost the best front page I've, I've ever seen on a fanzine when we made it to Wembley, which was, I, I believe, in Miracles, and they'd had like a conga yeah. going on. I think at, at uh, Morsel, wasn't it, where we yeah, yeah. we um, won over two legs, and I believe in Miracles probably is a great summary of that period from relegation in 1995-96 to the beginning of hope I suppose Merv I mean I'm mean, I'm going to guess your next book will cover the period after the, the Rhino and Macca era onwards yeah, I'm guessing I've got a tackle the 2000s really unless, I'm, unless I get bombarded on Twitter telling me to please please stop <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't stop because we get some great podcasts out of you, mate, when you do it. I'll tell you what. I'll keep, I'll keep going. But I think the, 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 the thing about that Wembley final, we may have lost it, but Fafitis was so stunned at the, the amount of fans that turned up. And being a businessman, he's thinking, well, there's 50,000, 55,000 Millwall fans here. Yeah. And I remember him saying, you know, if we can, we can you know, put your corporate head on it, if we can sort of mouth to all of these, and if we can get a half of these at the den every week, sort of thing. He realised then the potential of the club, that really ramped home the potential of the club for him. And thought, rather than just keeping it afloat, it's worth, you know, really sort of pushing the boat out for. So, and I think that, again, is what led into that, that, that really good period at the end of the early 2000s. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely want to cover that next, without a doubt, and continue the story. Because, again, crazy amount of stuff went on in just, in, in just the, the, the next few years, really, when you think about it. Oh, mate, you... You talk to any of the players that were around from 2000 to 2004, 2005, 
and some of the stories that they tell you, it's absolutely mad, especially <laughs> you know, especially around Theo and uh, what happened to the cup final, Paul, yeah, and yeah. things like that. And, uh, it, it, and you know, when Dennis Wise came in, when he brought in Wise, and he had them mm. fighting world champions in training. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... It, yeah, we talk about the crazy gang. This was on another level. The name of this book, listeners, South Bermondsey Homesick Blues. When's it? When's it actually being published, Merv? Is it? When does it come out? Coming out on the second of October. Um, it's available for you can you can sort of pre-order it now. Yep. Victorpublishing.co.uk forward slash shop. Little web plug there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can pre-order it, uh, and it's available on Amazon and that on the second of October. Lovely. We'll stick a link on for the Victor Publishing because I've, I've got that on my notes here. I'll stick a link into the show notes for that. Um, South South Bermondsey Subterranean <laughs> Homesick Blues. No, no Subterranean, Homesick Blues. Um, <laughs> we'll stick a link on there. Huge, huge thank you to Merv Payne and to Neil for joining us on the show today. We'll be back very, very soon, Neil and I, with another one of these um history hours i think that's an hour so yeah we'll be back very very soon to the next show thanks for listening and bye for now thank you for listening to after Normal. if you enjoyed the show please head over to apple podcast and leave us a cheeky little review over to till next time who do you want to watch <laughs> 